So welcome everybody to the first evening Dharma talk, afternoon Dharma talk. In case you're bad with names, which I am, I'm Bruce Hyman. And um, it's kind of traditional early in the retreat to um, talk about the hindrances, um, the experiences that we have that seem to be challenging. And probably none of you have run into any of those yet, but uh, uh, you may have. And if you haven't yet, you may down the line. So um, <clears throat> normally when I give Dharma talks, I like to kind of uh, stay very free form, but I think that this particular topic, there's there are very specific things written in um, the scriptures and the uh, Anguttara Nakara um, Tapitaka, which is the 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 book of numbers, and so since this is the five hindrances, it comes under the fives, and then there's some things under the ones as well, and so I'm going to refer to those a bit specifically, and then um, I'll kind of just give you some maybe some things to leave with that are my own reflections on this topic. So it probably has become clear to you that you just didn't drop here out of the void. You came from many different circumstances and what we like to talk about as conditioning. And that conditioning can go way back to when you were born and maybe even before you were born. Those factors you are bringing with you today and then there are more proximate, more recent causes. Uh, you may have had some difficulty planning for this trip, getting here. Um, you may have suffered recent losses or anxiety around certain events in your life. And in case you haven't noticed, you, you, you don't just drop those and come here and end up in bliss. It doesn't quite work that way. And so, these are things that we need to work with. I know in my case, um, we had, for Thanksgiving, we had six house guests. So there were eight of us uh, for the last, since uh, last uh, Wednesday. And they, the last two left Monday, the day before the retreat. So I'm feeling a little residual fatigue from that. And it's amazing how much food eight young people can eat <laughs> and how uh, how many dishes I mean so this was this was work I mean we we worked hard but it was a labor of love because we we love all the people that visited us our two children and their mates and uh, and nephew and niece so this makes me kind of think about you know coming and speaking on this topic about my first retreat that I took um, Jill and I had been in practice for about six months. I thought it was a year and a half, but Jill reminded me it was six months. And Mary Grace Orr, who was the founding teacher of Insight Santa Cruz, convinced us that it was time to take a 10-day retreat. And uh, I didn't know better. Um, and so we did. And it was at a place nearby here in the Santa Cruz Mountains called Vajrapani. And... Uh, we decided we would camp 
uh, we had to be in separate tents, which we did. And it was extremely hot and there was no air conditioning. Probably were a few fans maybe in the Dharma Hall. The black flies were voracious. And I found out something about those black flies, even though I live in these mountains and had for some time, even at that time, is that uh, they don't really bite. They just annoy. And so it was a, a process of, it was a black fly meditation, bringing equanimity and allowing them to just crawl around on your nose and inside your ear. And what I noticed was that if I could be equanimous with the flies, that uh, they seemed to settle and they seemed to sort of disappear. And um, these are particular flies that not, they're not house flies and they may be different flies than some of you have experienced. So anyway, I found out something about black flies. The other thing was that I had fractured my clavicle about roughly a year before and it hadn't healed and I had a plate put in and then the plate failed and so I have a second surgery to take the plate out and I was sitting I think a couple of weeks after that second surgery and I had all kinds of difficulty with, with discomfort around that. Plus I wasn't really a seasoned sitter so for sitting 45 minutes um, you know eight times a day or whatever it was it was really challenging for me. And I'm kind of restless anyway, so I, I just, uh, or I was at least at that time sitting. I found it extremely challenging. And I was kind of at my wit's end, really, after about five days. Uh, I was in a lot of pain. I was, the clavicle was like, I was, I don't know, it was almost like I was remembering the pain of surgery, even though I was under anesthesia or something. And I, actually, Gil Fronsdale was teaching, the man who set this whole center up. And I remember asking him, could I be experiencing some sort of pain that's coming from deep within? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> so, so that didn't help me too much. Um, so that was the hard part. I also had kind of an amazing experience so after five or six days of really being um, just frazzled, um, I remember waking up and Jill and I were walking, I think from the campsite to, to the first morning sit and though we weren't supposed to be talking, I said, you know what, I'm just, I'm just gonna, I, I just have to give up. I just have to stop efforting so hard. I have to just open to whatever my experiences. So in retrospect, that was probably a good idea. And then the second thing that happened was um, a little bit into the morning, one of the um, yogis, I, I can't even remember exactly what it was, but she was having some sort of, um, of, of a, an issue where she was near panicked. I think it was maybe starting to get into an asthmatic or allergic reaction or something. And Mary Grace knew, I'm a retired doctor. And so Mary Grace, even though I was a radiologist, maybe if she had known that, she wouldn't have been comforted by me. But um, she, um, um, she was feeling very, very upset and very panicked. And so Mary Grace asked if I would attend to her. And so all I really did was to just 
reassure her. I could listen to her chest with my ear and I could hear that, you know, there was really nothing, no big wheezes going on there. And, and um, she felt a lot better. And something about that experience was very heart opening to me. I felt such gratitude to have had in my training the ability to offer somebody that kind of comfort. And in fact, when I was nine years old and used to receive house calls from my pediatrician, he was the reason that I went into medicine because I just felt at ease as soon as he walked in the door. So I guess uh, that whole experience of sort of opening my heart and surrendering those two things, um, all of a sudden, my mind that wouldn't let go, that was constantly chattering at me, stopped, or at least it felt relative to what had been going on, it felt like it stopped. Maybe compared to my mind now and experiences I've had since, it would maybe not be as profound, but it was very profound. And so for a good chunk of the day, for many hours, when I would do walking meditation, when I would do um, sitting meditation, my mind was at ease. And it was like, wow, wow, I guess this is it. Fortunately, I guess I had enough wisdom to realize that this isn't the way it was going to be going forward. And it certainly hasn't been. So that was my first experience, quite a first retreat. Um, maybe it had to get so bad before it could get so good. So the Buddha knew that we were going to run into challenges. And so the teachings uh, exist, the five hindrances. I don't have a, uh, a, a great way of memorizing things, um, even though I had to do it and it was a real painful and difficult part for me in my training. I'm a good problem solver, but I don't have good rote memory. So I like to have little acronyms for things. So my acronym for the five hindrances is DADS with two A's. And so it's a little stretch, but... Um, so the first one is desire. And this is desire that can come up in from any of the sense gates. It can be desire for, for pleasant sights, sounds, smells, tastes, body sensations, thoughts or feelings. And so when we start to get really attached and cling to these desires, it's a source of, of suffering and we lose our ability to really be mindful and be aware because we get lost. And in the sutta, they, um, they like to give metaphors. For, so for those of you who like metaphors, that each one has a metaphor. So the metaphor is as though somebody is looking into a bowl with, filled with water and seeing their reflection, ideally. But there are obstacles, hindrances, to the ability to see one's reflection. So the first, the bowl for desire is um, that the bowl is filled with lack, crimson, and turmeric. So I knew what color crimson was, although I'm not too great with the off names for colors. And I knew what turmeric was because I like to cook Indian food. So uh, sort of a, so, so crimson is sort of a purple red and, 
and turmeric is, uh, is quite yellow, a little orange in its condensed form and yellow, but lac, L-A-C. So I had to look this one up. So this is an interesting one. So the lac is a, a beetle that's from Thailand and India. And it's, it's, uh, it's red. It's extremely bright red. And it is used to make shellac. It's actually dried and, and flaked. And it comes in bags and it's used to create shellac. In fact, shellac is shell lac. It's the word. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, maybe not to you, but to me it was. So and lacquer, by the way, is same same root. So that's the metaphor for desire. The second one is aversion, which you know, a uh, is means from and vert to vert is to turn. So it's turning from, turning from your experience, turning away from your experience. And so when we have unpleasant experiences, um, whether that be physical pain or whether it be uncomfortable thoughts or obsessive mind, we, we often try and push that away and we turn away from it. And so aversion can get pretty hot. So the metaphor for that is as though the water is bubbling and boiling and churning. And so with that bubbling and boiling, uh, one cannot really see one clearly, see one's reflection. So I have a story about aversion. Um, I'm not a, a, a very aversive person. I'm more of the desirous type, the greedy type. And um, so I, about a year and a half into my practice, went to a retreat uh, north of the city in a very primitive uh, retreat center. Seems to be the story of my life. Sometimes this certainly isn't. And um, it was exceedingly hot. It was like the two hot or three of the hottest days of the year. Um, and I think it was about 105. We were camping again. And the meditation hall, it was a, it was a site that was being developed. And so it really didn't have, didn't even have fans at first. So we were sitting there dripping and the, it was a concentration retreat. So the object was to really, you know, go try and see if we can achieve the jhanas, these deep states of absorption, keeping the mind focused on an object, narrowly focused on an object. And the teacher was Sister Dipankara, who was a disciple of Pao Uk, who was a very famous Burmese concentration master. And um, so the story is, I guess, that the Burmese um, are very open-hearted and very kind. And, and what they need is a lot of discipline to, to achieve these states. We all do, but they particularly do. So she was, she was driving us. And I think we in the West sometimes need more uh, patting on the back and saying it's okay. And yes, it's good that you do have some drive and some motivation, but it's okay, easy does it. And we've already you know, alluded to this in this retreat. So again, by about the fourth or fifth day, I was, I was way over efforting and I uh, sort of hit a wall. And every afternoon, Sister DePankara was in a big camper, a big air-conditioned camper, which was nice. It was great that she had that. 
um, as she was teaching the retreat. So we would go for interviews. And it seemed like we always had the same kind of lineup of interviews. And so the person who was in front of me was cooking. He was really going to deep states of jhana. And so she was, you know, saying, oh, that's really wonderful. Oh, you're advanced. Now you're in the second jhana. And I found myself sitting there listening to this because the next person waited inside and feeling hatred, <laughs> really. So, I mean, aversion, just a lot of aversion because I was suffering so much. thinking, what? what's wrong with me? And this, what's this? Is this guy lying or is he really doing it or what? And I really was in a deep state of aversion. And it came to me after doing this a couple of times that what I needed to do was to apply the antidote. And I'll get to that later and talk to you about that. So aversion is a bubbling and a boiling. It's hot. And I felt hot, and literally and figuratively. The third one is agitation. Now, this can be either obsession or uh, restlessness and worry. And for me, this, this one comes up for me, um, sort of obsessing mind, worrying about things. Um, and the metaphor for this one is, is wind and ripples and wavelets and turbulent water. And so the churning of the water makes it hard to be able to see clearly, which we need to do in Vipassana to see clearly. The fourth one is doubt. And uh, doubt is, is the metaphor for doubt is just a sort of a turbid, uh, unsettled water with debris in it where, again, you just can't see through it and you can't see the reflection because there's too many particles. And sometimes they say it's as though the bowl is in a dark corner as well. So you really are, you're kind of fuzzy. And doubt does come up. You know, wh- am I doing it right? You know, am I doing this right? Because it doesn't necessarily seem to be working. Am I... Am I doing this practice in the right way? And does this practice even work if I am doing it in the right way? And then the last one is sloth and torpor. And the, uh, the, one, the uh, uh, metaphor for this is as though plants and algae are covering the surface. So, you know, you just can't even come close to having any kind of a reflection. And sloth and tarpa is a big one for a lot of people. We come here often tired uh, because many of us are sleep deprived anyway. And I notice that as I age, my sleep is not as good. And I think that's true with a lot of people who are aging. And so uh, this is something that can be a real challenge for us. And particularly the first few days when we've kind of rushed and stressed to, to get here, many of us. So these are the, the classical five hindrances. And um, in the Sutta of Ones, and I don't know why it's under Ones exactly, there are antidotes, ways that, that we can work with this. And, and I think some of these are helpful. So for desire, lust is, usually, is sort of the, the way it is um, referred to. 
Um, and I was thinking, why, why lust? Because as I mentioned, you, we can have desire for many things and attachment to the desire that really makes us suffer. Um, but I was thinking, well, uh, if this was written for the monastics, many of them were young monks. And so I'm sure lust was a real challenge for the young monks coming into the monastic celibate life. So um, Bob had referred to under the body practices, what are called the Asuba practices, and one of them is 32 parts of the body. And they have, there are various sections of you know, the, the spleen and the liver and the lungs and the skin and the hair. And, and, and so they're kind of bunched in sections. And one of the sections is the fluids. And so contemplating the foulness of the body, but I, I don't really like that. I think it's re that really better to think of it as just ways of s seeing the disenchantment of the body. And that can be a antidote to lust, if that comes up. So 32 parts of the body, the fluids are, you know, blood and urine and pus and... Um, uh, oil of the joints, which is synovial fluid, that kind of slippery stuff that's in your joint, and bile. And so, you know, when you contemplate these, they are a bit unlovely. And so this is sort of felt to, this is felt to be a contemplation of this as an antidote. And the other thing is contemplation of the stages of decay, which Bob had talked about as well. One of my teachers, Sogni Rinpoche, um, is a little more graphic. He would say, well, we love as, as men, we, or maybe women too, we love our mate's beautiful hair unless we find it in our food. And uh, so, uh, so this is just sort of a, a way of um, counterbalancing this tendency for the mind to proliferate on lust and to contemplate something that is unlovely. So for aversion, which was the story that I told you about, uh, this is when I first realized the power of the antidote. And the antidote for aversion is metta, is kindness, loving kindness. And so I remember distinctly taking a walk. I actually think I was taking a walk with Jill and we kind of Again, we're talking when we shouldn't have. And we, um, I just said, I'm, God, I'm just so, I'm having such a struggle with this. I'm just feeling all of this adversity to, to my situation here and to this person. And it occurred to me that this would be a great time to do metta. So I started sending metta to myself, kindness to myself. May I be happy, may I be contented, may I just relax, may I be at ease. Uh, may I be safe from mental harm? Because I was certainly causing myself mental harm. And metta towards the man who was doing great. And also there's, you know, another one of the heavenly abodes is gladness, where you, you, you instead of being jealous of somebody having a good experience, you uh, rejoice in the fact that they are having a good experience and you're happy. And so employing the metta and all that, it, 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 within a half a day, I had a whole different experience. I still was not concentrating very well, 
but I was no longer lost in aversion and it really settled me on the retreat. So I can vouch for metta. And I had had some training in metta early in my Vipassana career, but I hadn't really, since I'm not much of an aversive person, I hadn't really employed it. And uh, this gave me a good chance to, to put it to work. So it's something to remember. The third one uh, in dads, the, the second A, is agitation. So this is an interesting one because it's one that I've really thought a lot about. So you may have noticed already in your own experience that when you're feeling agitated, when the mind is off in, um, in uh, obsession and uh, the body is uncomfortable and you're unable to concentrate and you're feeling restless or you're worried about something, um, that if you are able to stay with an object of meditation like the breath, at least for that period of time, there is ease. There is some relief. Now, uh, if we're not experienced meditators, and even if we are depending upon the situation we come to meditation in, we may or may not be able to hold that. So, but that is definitely an anecdote that I can vouch for. And in fact, thinking about this talk and having some obsession around it at times, I noticed that when I really was on the breath sitting here in front here, uh, you know, I was really able to bring some ease to that whole experience. So when the, when the concentration doesn't work too well, we do have another way of um, greeting our experience, and that's with insight. That's mindfulness. That's bringing awareness to whatever experience we are having. And they support one another. They're not, they're in, they're, they're, it's helpful to talk about them independently, but in a certain way they are not, they're interdependent. One supports the other. So when we can be aware of and not lost in our uh, experience, whatever it is, then um, that starts to help us bring ease as well. And the agitation starts to um, decline in my experience. So both of those things are supportive of one another. So doubt. So this one, uh, the anecdote, I'm, I guess it really is helpful, but for me, I had to really th to give some, th some thought to this. So the antidote is proper attention. And, and so I had to really look at the footnotes and kind of figure out what, what does proper attention, what does that mean? Because uh, aren't we just trying to give everything proper attention? So um, it's really a, a kind of a deep attention to our experience in such a way that we start to notice what are called the three characteristics of all conditioned experience, which is basically all experiences we're having, that having that's dependent upon other, other uh, precursors. So those are um, impermanence, just noticing that our experiences are all impermanent. If we can stay with them and hold our awareness, we'll notice that they will arise and pass. 
and that this self that um, seems so solid and like so much like a thing is a constantly changing experience and it's really a verb and not a noun and that we're constantly evolving and changing um, and there's nothing permanent about this self and nothing independent of conditions. And that also the third characteristic being that um, there's something about this human existence that is unsatisfactory and it's just incapable of satisfying us for part of the same reason is that even if it does satisfy us now, it will change. And so when we start to see deeply, this can start to, to help us with the doubt. And maybe in along a little more practical lines, we can seek help from a teacher or we can read and we can start to get maybe a little clearer on the teachings. So that can be helpful too. So for sloth and torpor, it's really all about energy. And it's about first arousing energy. And I think Bob uh, gave you some tips on what is helpful to arouse energy. So we can open our eyes and bring in light. Light is helpful to arouse energy. We can stand up and it's always okay to stand up when we're feeling drowsy. Sloth and torpor is not only just feeling tired, but having sort of a fuzzy mind, a mind that's just not clear. And so arousal in any way you need to. You might need to go into the bathroom after the sit and splash cold water. You might need to take a brisk walk. And if all else fails, you might need to take a nap. And you should. If you are really feeling exhausted, take a nap. Be smart. Take care of yourself. And so this uh, sloth and torpor does require a certain level of exertion. We've really got to, we've got to, we've got to bring the energy up and exert. But we can only do that if we come from, from a, a bit of rest. And we have to be careful not to overexert because that can make you feel tired too. I have that experience. If I over effort, then I just start to fuzz out. So you can kind of titrate that. Be careful with that. So those are the classic teachings. But I have my own musings. Um, first of all, and this is not mine, but just knowing that you're in being impaired by a hindrance, that you're being affected by a hindrance, that's, that's almost all it takes. Oh, this is just, this, oh, this is just agitation. Not getting lost in it, but just to identify it, name it. Oh, oh, this is sloth and torpor. I'm not the only one. Buddha, 2,600 years ago, he figured this thing out. Uh, it's not me. It's not my failing. It's part of the process of trying to work on being mindful. So I want to leave you with two things to remember. I, when, when I was uh, in training as a radiologist, and I actually was at a teaching county teaching hospital after I went into practice because I joined the group that trained me, um, one of my teachers who was a real character, but he had a lot of solid wisdom. He used to say, when you give a Dharma talk, if, if, if people remember, w I mean Dharma talk, if you give a, a talk 
uh, wasn't a Dharma talk, a lecture, um, if people can wa- will walk away and remember one thing, consider it successful. And if you think about that, it's really true. It's really hard to walk away with from, a, from any kind of a lecture or Dharma talk and really remember a lot of what was said. So I'm going to leave you with a couple of things. And one more thing to say before that. Taking a lesson from my experience on that retreat where I had um, the sense of gratitude for the training I had and the capacity to bring comfort to um, the woman who was suffering, I think it's very helpful before you start a sit to just recall something that you're grateful for. And I don't care who you are, there is something that you're grateful for. There is definitely something you're grateful for. And um, in prison, we even will say to the inmates, you know, there's got to be something you're grateful for. And they can always, they, they can find something they're grateful for. If they can find something grateful f- they're, for, they're grateful for, I'm sure we all can. Because they're in tough circumstances there. But they say they're grateful for the food. They're grateful for housing and shelter. They're grateful for the fact that they have some friends on the yard. They're grateful for the fact that they can go outside. So maybe those are all things, if we can't think of anything else, we can be grateful for. So to evoke that, to just take a minute or two and feel it, really feel it in the heart, the heart-mind. And... um, Somehow that conditions the mind in a way that I think is really helpful for meditation and mindfulness. So there are two things that I think we can really bring to our meditation and mindful experience that are really helpful. So I'm going to ask you to try and remember two things instead of one. So I'm I'm really pushing it. So one is equanimity. And so equanimity, I guess the 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 thought is kind of like you know the the balance beams that are on a barrel it's kind of like finding this ability to sort of not go into too much grasping and i want that and not go into too much aversion oh i hate that i got to get rid of that and to just find a place of of balance and ease and you know just taking the attitude that whatever your experience is, it's okay. It's your experience, right? So if you hate it, um, then you're hating your own experience. And that's not going to be helpful. That will not serve you. That will not be of any benefit to you. One of my teachers, uh, Shinzen Young, who has been very influential in my practice, He says, the commandment is, don't fight with thyself. So don't fight with yourself. And that will knock you off balance. You're either fighting to maintain something that will change, so that's a losing battle, that something maybe you like, like a pleasant mind state or whatever, or you're, you're fighting trying to get rid of something that's being presented to you. So rather than fighting it, just equanimize, just say, okay, it's okay, it's okay. And then the second part will give some help with that too. 
Another thing he likes to say is to love your experience to death. And that took, uh, took me a while to figure out what, what's he talking about? To love, your, love it to death. What does that mean? And so what I realized is what he's saying is that if we open to our experience with equanimity, and we bring mindfulness to our experience, which means that we are able to pay attention to it, to allow our minds to be with that experience and concentrate on it for at least a breath or two in a deep way. And we can be clear on our experience, if we can know the difference between a sore knee and all the proliferation around the stories that we tell, and the difference between that story of, oh my God, my knee, you know, I think it's time to see the orthopedist. I wonder if I'm going to need a partial knee or a total knee replacement. Uh, all the th ways that we spin out to understand the difference between pain and the complexity we add to the pain. And that includes feelings too. We may have feelings of fear or anxiety around uh, any experience that we're having, having. So loving an experience to death, bringing equanimity to the experience, just means that we will pay close enough attention to it without trying to push away the hard stuff and grab onto the stuff we love so that we can see its true nature, so that we can let nature do its thing. And what nature does is nature changes. Everything arises. It's the nature of everything that arises to pass. If you can think of something that doesn't, let me know. Um, so, but we have to be with the experience to really know that. That's the wisdom side of the practice. We can't just kind of slide by our experience and expect to gain that wisdom piece. So it requires a bit of, of a balance. A balance between uh, soothing and calming and insight, wisdom practice, which is mindfulness, bringing awareness to our experience. And as Bob mentioned, uh, I think there was a question involved with this. Um, right now, we're sort of emphasizing more the calming. Now, for those of you who, who have long and steady practices, you may be able to sort of bounce back and forth and use skillful means to, um, to, to deal with the difficult and the pleasant both by employing this combination of, of soothing or calming and mindfulness. But right now, we're kind of skewing this towards mindfulness. So we're saying, right for now, we're going to use the body, which is a great um, source of uh, an object to, to concentrate on, to soothe and to settle. And that when things interfere, either it be sounds or thoughts or feelings, that, yeah, we'll, we'll notice that, but 
we'll move back to the object meditation. And, and that's skillful. That's a very important way to start a retreat. However, if those things are really powerful, then we really do need sometimes to take a little bit of a side trip and we do need to pay attention to them, but we need to not go off into the mind. We need to feel. In my experience, um, if it's worry, anxiety, fear, sadness, it's best to use the body, to notice what that experience is in the body. And you see, my hands sort of go here because for me, this is where I feel a lot of it. Sometimes I feel sadness kind of in this part of the body, but I could guarantee you that if it's feelings, it'll be somewhere likely, somewhere in the ventral part of the body. It's the exposed part. When we were all on, on fours, you know, that part was covered. But now we're up you know, in our hearts, in our guts, in our, uh, our, our, our organs, and our genitals are out there. They're, I mean, they're exposed, they're f- open. And so that's where we're going to really likely feel. And so if you are bombarded by some f- sort of strong feeling to just move into the feeling in the body without, and drop the stories. If you find yourself talking, oh, I'm so sad because this and this, and I wonder if I, if, you know, I think I'm failing in this exercise because I should really be doing better and I should be on the breath. Just that's got to all go. That's got to be let go of. And just feel what there is to feel. And if that gets to be too intense, come back to the breath. Come back to something that's soothing. If it's the breath or your sensation of your butt on the chair or whatever it is that you're using as your object of meditation. So it's a titration. It's a back and forth of soothing and investigating. So that's the second part of taking an interest. So I've pretty much talked about. So so it's equanimity and take an interest. Take an interest in your experience. Um, rather than trying to reject it or grab onto it, get interested in it. And when I say get interested in it, again, it's skillful in my experience not to get interested in it in an analytical, cognitive way. But to get interested in it as a, in a, in a way of sensing into the body. Taking it. What does anxiety feel like? You know, what, what is the experience of anxiety? What is the experience of fear? You know, maybe the gut tightens up. Maybe the heart beats a little bit faster. I got good training in, in, um, in the body's experience of fear. When I was young, uh, I, had, I lived in the Midwest and I had really started to get very severe seasonal allergies around ragweed and... and um, goldenrod and all of the Midwestern summer weeds. And uh, I started to get asthmatic, actually, a bit. Not severe. And so I went in for allergy shots. I don't know if you've, any of you have had allergy shots, but sometimes they overdose you. And um, I was, I think I was maybe around 13 or 14. 
And so uh, when they overdose you, then you, you get a full-blown allergic attack, including asthma. And so I probably had about half a dozen overdoses. And what's the treatment? The treatment is epinephrine or adrenaline. So they give you a shot of adrenaline. And so, you know, you might think it's personal when you have your fear or your scared reactions, but it, it's chemical, believe me. I mean, it, it originates through a process of the brain sensing something that, that gives it a fight or flight reaction. But the reality is that that adrenaline really, if, if we don't enhance it, with the mind, that adrenaline does not last very long. I've heard 90 seconds. I think in my own personal experience, maybe it was the chemical lasts longer than our, our adrenal gland secretions, but maybe a little longer than that, but not real long if we can be with it. So, you know, the racing heart, the flushing, the tension in the, in the, in the body, the gut, uh, all of these mediated by adrenaline or epinephrine. So if I can leave you with anything, I want to leave you with the five dad's hindrances, if you can remember them, because it's a frame of reference. You know, it, it does help to sometimes be able to frame your experience from the scriptures. It gives you a tool. Oh yeah, this is just desire. Oh that this is just sloth and tarper. It's not personal. It's not a failing on my part. But really, the two key things is it's okay. Whatever you're experiencing, bring equanimity. It's okay. It's happening. It's okay. And take an interest in it. Explore it. Know it, but know it not cognitively. Know it in the body kind of uh, avoiding the tendency to figure it out or to have a cognitive explanation for what's going on or why it's going on. And to start the meditation with a, a little gratitude to open the heart. So I leave you with that and I hope that that's helpful for you in your practice and I think we'll take a few minutes to just sit.